Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to another Tyler's Long One here on the Radio Show Limited Network, named after our long-time pit lane reporter Graham Tyler and despite the fact he no longer does these interviews, uh, we've decided to keep the name in his honour because this was his concept. And our subject for today, possibly he might think victim, is Brian Sellers. Uh, Brian currently driving for Paul Miller Racing in IMSA, that's where we talk about him the most with the Lamborghini but we're here today to find out all about how he got to where he is now in motor racing our subject for the Tyler's Long One is Brian Sellers so Brian, first of all, thank you for having us to your absolutely gorgeous home um, we'll, we'll talk about your family life in a little while but your introduction to motor racing came how? I started when I was nine years old, and it's a little bit of a long-winded story, but the short and long of it is um, we moved school districts when my brother was born. Um, I guess my parents decided that that was a good time to get out when the favorite child came along. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, that's something we're going to explore for the rest of this interview. And where, where, where were you in, in the U.S. at this point? Um, I grew up in Ohio, mm-hmm. and so uh, we moved and I I was in, I believe, third grade, and uh, we went from probably not a great school district to the best school district in the area, and I struggled a lot, um, struggled to make friends a little bit, struggled certainly with the curriculum in, in, in the grades, and so my dad... Um, one night came to me and, you know, at nine years old, had as about as serious as a talk as we can have, and he just said, hey, listen, we, you know, we moved because we want better things for you guys. And one of these things was school. I know you're having a hard time, but you know, we need to find something to, to keep you motivated in school to keep the grades high. And he said, so your mom and I have talked and we can, we can do what you want to do. Um, as long as you keep a B average. And he said, you know, we could go ride horses on the weekend. We can ride dirt bikes. We can go go go-kart racing. And um, that for me triggered something because he raced karts a little bit with his brothers when he was younger. And so I always saw the pictures. Uh, and I, I think he so probably... So horses, dirt bikes, and go-karts. Yeah. You knew what go-karts were. You weren't sure about horses and dirt bikes. Yeah, horses, horses as far as I was concerned, was something that could hurt me pretty badly. So I wanted to Never stay. trust anything that doesn't have a handbrake, yeah. yeah. I always think. Exactly. So I wanted to stay away from those. And so I immediately said to him, hey, I want to go kart racing. And I don't think he thought that that's what I was going to say. Um, and, and I don't think he was really prepared for it because certainly um, they did not have the money to to do that, but it was so important. You know, they, we had just moved, they were strapped for cash in the, in the new house. And, um, but it was important to him and my mom. Um, and so he said, well, why don't you just, why don't you sleep on it overnight and get back to me in the morning? And I remember waking up the next morning and first thing I said is, yep, no, that's what I definitely want to do. Um, and so that year for Christmas, uh, 
you know, I got a I got a go kart under the Christmas tree. Wow. And other than doing a bit of karting in his younger years, there was no family history of motorsport then. No, there was there was no history. And I mean, to be honest, that we weren't one of those families that even while we were racing really grew up watching racing. I mean, our racing is is what we did. Um, as I started to get a little bit older, obviously, you know, you follow it more because you realize that's what you want to do. And, yeah. and not only do you want to follow it, you have no choice but to follow it. Um, <clears throat> so our actual like being racing fans in our family came much later um, than than earlier. So, um, you know. Our, our involvement, not just my involvement, but our involvement as a family kind of spurred that. So, so under the Christmas tree, there's a go-kart-shaped parcel. You can't really wrap a go-kart up. Please tell me it wasn't wrapped up. It was just sitting there. No, it wasn't wrapped. <laughs> yeah. It was sitting there, yeah. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, the thought then, presumably from your dad, wasn't necessarily that you would go into competition, would, that you would go and have a bit of fun in one of these things. There was a local track, was there? Yeah, there was. There's a local track at a little place uh, called G&J Cartway in Camden, Ohio, is where we where we started. And I, I did want to race from the very beginning, and that was okay. But he was actually, when you look back, he was really smart because we uh, had that whole winter. I mean, in Ohio, the race season, I want to say, started in May, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So we got it in December, and we practiced from December till the first race, um, you know, quite frequently actually like two three times a week so when we went to the first race I was ready I mean I won my first race but it wasn't it wasn't for me it wasn't like a first race I mean it was it obviously was but I'd done so many laps and knew so much and we had worked so much that um it was just kind of that at that stage just a different day and where was where was the inspiration coming from and where was the tuition coming from how did you find out what a racing line was trial and error or was somebody telling you was your dad helping you out my grandpa and my dad were around a lot for sure um and so they would literally stand out on the track and one of them would stand where they wanted me to break and one of them would stand at the apex where they wanted me to hit and I would they were my connect the dots right I would go from one to the other and and to the other Um, and then they would just slowly move down the track later into the break zones or move where they wanted me to apex and that's you know how figuring out the line started and then they were always really big my dad and grandpa on the technical aspect of things Mm -hmm. like telling them what the cart was doing and starting that language really early so I've grown up with a huge appreciation for that side of it the the technical side of the lines the the technique of the braking the accelerating the dynamics of everything and so that's kind of always been near and dear to my heart because of those moments and you guys were fixing the thing yourself and tuning it and making changes to it as well and even at at that age nine ten were you involved in, in that as well yeah, I did. I did a lot um, from the very beginning. And as I got even a little bit older, kind of into 12, 13 age group, I think my dad was working and, and obviously working, but uh, was working to, to try and pay for a lot of this stuff. And my and what brother, was your, what were your dad's what was your dad's career? My dad is a food broker, so him him and my grandfather started their business together, and the business had started to grow. So his responsibility and it became obviously even more and more. And so he sat down um, with me. My brother had started racing by that time, and he in you know he sat down and he said, "Listen, um, if this is what you want to do, I, I you know I'm I need you to take on more of this." And he said, "You know I, I'm I'm." 
he was always there for me, has always. So I'm not trying to make it sound like he stepped aside because that certainly wasn't the case, but he gave me more responsibility. And um, he kind of said, hey, if you go to the race, if you want to go to the racetrack during the week, you need to make sure the carts are ready. When he came home from work, he'd check over what I'd done, make sure it was done properly and safely. Um, But, you know, I would come home from school uh, when the sun was still out, open the garage door, work on the carts. And when they got home, I'd shut the garage door. He'd go in and check it and I'd go in and do my schoolwork. And mm-hmm. um, that's that's kind of how it operated. And so the same thing went when we would go to the track, we would still go practice two to three times a week. Wow. And so I'd get the carts ready. He'd come home from work. We'd go straight to the track. On the way to the track, I would do homework. It was about an hour drive, 45 minute drive. So I'd do homework on the way to the track. And then inevitably, by the time it was all over, we weren't leaving till, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock when it got dark. And then I'd sleep on the way back and into bed, wake up the next morning and do it all over again. And now- these were direct drive, not shifter carts. So this was a direct drive two-stroke cart. We st- started in four-stroke okay. um, because at the time it was very it was very cost-effective. Yes. Uh, I mean the price difference between say at the time like a Yamaha KT100 and a Briggs and Stratton you know five horse was mm-hmm. significant. I yes. think you could get into a blueprinted uh, Briggs and Stratton you know seven ten horsepower motor for. and you to go to the Yamaha the KT100 you're $12 to $1500 depending on the clutch assembly and the motor and and so it just was not it was not an option um just just price wise eventually um you kind of ran out of options you had to go that route if you wanted to continue to do it and and presumably eventually you also had to move away from the local track because the early days clearly um it everybody does it the local track you become a bit of a, an expert as you clearly did with the, all of that track time um when was the decision made and, and how soon then was that decision made that uh actually i might be quite tidy at this dad and i think we need to broaden our horizons as far as racing is concerned so one thing i have to say about my family about my mom and my dad is they're both in my opinion fearless of of failure and so, um, you know, I, I was brought up watching these two um, put everything into their business, into their kids, into their family, and, and never seemingly scared of what the consequences were. So having said that, uh, they were also not fearful of me losing mm-hmm. um, or learning or trying to get better. So we went to the national level after about six months of, of racing. I went to my first national um, because they, do you remember where that was? Yeah, it was in Charlotte, North Carolina inside, wow. inside the, uh, inside the speedway that had a car yeah. track there. And it, at the time it was, um, it was the spring national. So everyone had just come out of the winter. It was the big, a lot of really big heavy hitters, guys that were still, uh, around for a long time, like, uh, Casey Atwood, who did, um, NASCAR for a long time, just as one of the guys, but, um, there, there were a lot of heavy hitters and, um, I finished sixth right behind those group of guys and this is at what 10 years old uh yeah probably about 10 yep wow and so um but it was eye-opening because you come from the local track and you know we had already started winning a lot of stuff and you go there and um I was so intimidated I'll I'll never forget I I for sure could have finished better than sixth because I sat behind those guys but I watched the way they were racing versus the way that I had raced at that stage and they were like bumping and banging and rubbing wheels and 
I probably never said it to anybody, certainly not in an interview, but I can remember just being so intimidating and to be honest, a little bit scared Mm -hmm. to get involved Mm -hmm. in it because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I ended up six. Because you hadn't done it, because that hadn't been your style and the style of that type of racing. I, I think a lot of people listening to you will really identify with that coming out of one class of racing, whether it's uh, skip barber racing over here, whether it's club racing or historic racing in, in Europe and the UK. At that level, you are racing A, for the love of it, and B, because you're actually okay, you're doing all right with it. When you move to, it doesn't take a very big step to where people are being really, really serious about it. Mm. And that's where it's it needs a, almost a, a mind shift, doesn't it? It does. And so I remember also going home from that weekend thinking, okay, I was pretty happy with how we had done being able to hang on. Um, But I also remember a a fire inside thinking, okay, I don't really like finishing sixth, (laughs) which was different because, um, you know, I'd played sports, but I had never really been that competitive. It just didn't matter to me and all the other stuff. It didn't matter enough. And this is the Mm. first time I remember going home thinking that that wasn't good enough for me and thinking, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to finish six. Like the the risk of having something happen all of a sudden seemed way less uh, meaningful than than the finish. You know, so um, I remember thinking, okay, if you want to run with these guys and you want to be up front, then something is going to have to change. And so, I mean, maybe it wasn't that in depth at 10 years old, but I remember being angry and I remember wanting to do better. Um, and so that changed my mindset. And how was the skill work going on? The B average being kept up at this point? Yeah, it was It was good up until, yeah. It was only when I got to high school that it started being a little <laughs> bit of a problem. But uh, And that was presumably because of the time you were taking out to go race. That, yeah, that had to be the reason. <laughs> it had to be the reason. I'm, I'm helping you out yeah. here, Brian. <laughs> I remember there was, there was it, it was probably actually just pre-high school. So in middle school, there was a time um, where I'd come home and my averages were less than what they were supposed to be. And... Um, we were we were racing a national and it was coming up and it was two weeks before we were leaving for the event and um he you know i brought home the 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 midterm reports and he said well we're we're not going and it was actually turns out being the year i won the national one of the national point championships um anybody told me we're not going and and i thought he was full of it to be honest I thought that he didn't didn't mean it and he said no I'm so how old are you about this time uh now I'm probably 16 okay. I guess so we oh, skip yeah. forward a lot oh no no that's yep. fine that's fine so um but you know I'm stubborn at, at this well, stage but, but at, this, at this moment you're still it's you, you, your family is still funding you you're still doing all your own pretty much all your own spannering be, in between you and the family yeah it's not a work deal or anything like that <laughs> it, it at this time it probably has transitioned um away mostly from my family okay. funding it. Um, but we still did all the work. Right. Uh, so, you know, the carts, the engines, all the tires, mm-hmm. all that stuff was provided. But, you know, we we had to do the labor. Um, but well, that's quite a big thing, though, Brian, to, to, to even at that early stage to have been recognized enough to get some commercial help, whether it's in equipment or, or travel money or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and and you know, a lot of people will, will, will hear that and go, oh, wow, so he must have been quite good early on. Uh, do you remember how that came about, how that commercialization of it came about? And, and did that 
change your and in some ways your dad's attitude to this from being something to keep you focused at school to something that might turn out into career although having said what you've just said about your midterms maybe not well it it kind of it came about um you know getting getting free equipment at the time was um I want to say not that difficult um but it it obviously was it Mm. always is difficult for someone to give three thousand dollars in equipment five thousand dollars in equipment so it's a lot of money um but I had started to do a good job I had started to finish consistent um I think with not necessarily the best equipment at the time and so people uh, some people had taken notice of that and because of that you know invested a little bit and helped with some equipment and then it it progressed more and more I think um as far as the family perspective goes between my mom and dad their goal never changed and has never changed through all of it and and I think that they still um never really saw it they hoped for me but they never really saw it as as uh, a way for me to make a career for them it was an investment in my future mm-hmm. um and i think an investment in in me as a as a person an and they they still have not you know fluctuated from that i think the, even to this Does your dad still tell you to go and get a proper job one day <laughs> yeah it took my dad a very very long time before so when are you going to get a proper job son yeah. with tongue-in-cheek partially for yeah. uh, for the latter years in fairness he keeps telling me don't get a proper job <laughs> you don't want one um, <laughs> But I think, you know, when they look back for them, it was the, the whole thing has been a um, an investment in life, I think. Yeah, and and that's that's what they've looked at. And so whatever came of that beyond that was happy. So he never, ever, they never, ever, not just my dad and my mom, uh, they never, ever came off of that, hey, you got to maintain your grades just because someone else was had involvement in it. So in terms of that national at 16, did you have to pick your grades up or did your dad relent or and and you know that was a successful year for you he didn't relent he told me listen you have two weeks and you know you need to come with a note from a from the teacher that says um uh, that your grades have increased and that they're okay and he probably doesn't remember I mean to him it it's probably just kind of run of the mill and that's what you were supposed to do and if you didn't do it then so be it so I bet if he when he listens to this he'll, he'll think oh that never happened but it, <laughs> it happened I can tell you it happened but what a fantastic spur and clearly you did it and you went back and stuck in and, and that you're talking it's interesting you were talking there Brian about effectively life lessons that's about application isn't it yeah it is um and and I think that <clears throat> And discipline as well. It is. Self-discipline. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, I there are a lot of uh, drivers, I think, probably in my age group at this stage that kind of forewent college to drive because I think that's what was needed at that particular time is people wanted to see that commitment and see mm. you do only that. Um, if I could rewind, I think that's one thing I would probably do over. I would have gone to school. Um, along with driving, but I mean, hindsight's, you know, it's always twenty twenty. but that's one of the things I it's always... more prevalent nowadays. You hear of, of, of lads in their late teens and early 20s continuing with studies in some way, shape or form uh, and, and putting back, particularly over here in the States. Not, I think it's harder in Europe because everybody expects you to be in, in Formula One by the time you're just out of diapers, frankly. Yeah, and I think, I think that's exactly right. But I also think that here... It is a little bit different because 
school is so easily accessible here. And and I think in and sport and school here have have got a different relationship than I think that we have certainly in the UK and probably the rest of Europe. There are things of sports scholarships in the in the UK and Europe, of course they are, but not at the level that you, that, that you get them here. All right, for stick and ball sports or athletic sports, perhaps, but being able to combine a sport and studying is not so unusual here. No, it's it's actually the opposite, I yeah. would say, um, quite the opposite. Even people that don't go on scholarships, most of them have some sort of involvement in some intramural sport or something mm. uh, in school pride, extracurricular activities. And, and um, so, I mean... And I think if, you know, looking back, I could have, you could have balanced both. Uh, and it just, it would, it would give you a little bit more stability and a little bit more confidence moving forward uh, for what happens next. But, you know, hey, it's, there's still plenty of time for that, hopefully. <laughs> uh, that's Brian Sellers talking to me, John Hindoff. We're on a long one at the moment uh, with him in his lovely house uh, just north of Atlanta that he shares uh, with his wife, Jamie, Jamie Howe, who many of you will know work with us on uh, the IMSA uh, series and, and now in her own right is a very accomplished broadcaster uh, on TV. Um, we'll come back to your career in a moment. Um, let's talk about the family life. Um, I had a, a long chat with Ollie Gavin for this series uh, recently, second half of a, a chat with him, and he was very keen to say how much his family life, his home... And it doesn't matter about the bricks and mortar, just somewhere to come back to was his anchor um, in, a, in a life that is played out for the most part at 180 miles an hour. Similar sort of thought from you? Uh, it, well, I would say exactly the same. And um, if there's somebody that can talk more than I can, it's probably Ollie Gavin. So I can imagine it's a long, it's a long conversation, but uh, it's exactly right. Uh, you for me, things changed pretty substantially when, when my son first came. Um, and then again, even more when, when my daughter came, I'm, I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, with, with Jamie getting to travel and doing the races as well, that the kids come. So you, you, it's amazing. It's amazing how quick the emotions can change at the racetrack for me. Um, you know, you can have a bad day and, and be having a very bad day, um, bad qualifying and you're leading up to the race and my son always comes to the grid before the race and uh it's it's become the most emotional part of of my life that that moment because it's the same every time he sees me and someone puts him down and he runs to me and he wraps his arms around your neck and it's like it just my eyes well up every single time because you just get this that's a true for me that's like a true moment of accomplishment been fortunate to to win some pretty cool races um but none of them have felt quite like that moment and so when it feels bad all of a sudden you see this and then you think okay now I'm ready now I'm ready to race a lot of people say that their racing lives change when their personal lives change particularly with children in terms of how they think about responsibility Sounds to me that you, in common with one or two other people I've spoken to, would possibly agree with that, but also say that it gives perspective. And it actually might, because people, the the B side of what I was saying was that some people say it slows them down. I've got kids, it slows me down. The what if moment. Um, and, we, and we live in dangerous, we work in a dangerous sport. Sounds to me that it's quite the opposite for you. It focuses you more because it makes you realise that whatever nonsense has happened beforehand that unconditional amount of love that Liam is giving to you just puts your feet back on the ground 
you refocus, you get in the car, and that's it. For me, it's done a lot of things. I mean, I think it, most drivers are the most critical people of themselves that you'll ever find for multiple reasons, but especially on track. So it's easy to find it's easy to find fault in everything you do inside the car to think you should be better, you should do this better, but you see this little person come up to you and all of a sudden those faults kind of go away a little bit or become a little bit less relevant. But also I think for me, I, I, it's kind of in my nature to try and be a provider, to be there for the people I care about and the people I love. And so when I see him or see them, my family, Jamie, my daughter, Mila, um, you think, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I take care of them. And taking care of them means being the best I can be in the race car, every single lap, every single moment. And so um, the thought for me has changed completely. I never had that thought of, um, you know, hey, I need to think twice about this because I mm. have kids. It's it's mm. actually been the opposite. <laughs> like, hey, stop thinking and get and get the job done yeah. because you have kids yeah. and you got to take care of this. Otherwise, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are we having for dinner? So um, <laughs> it uh, for me, it, it's been it's been good. I've I, I actually think. At this stage in my career, I'm better than I ever have been. Uh, I feel like I'm still growing on a regular basis and still learning, but I feel like I'm very comfortable um, with with who I am as a driver right now, with where I'm at as a driver right now, um, and I'm trying to enjoy it more now than I ever have, which I think has been been key for me. Let's slip back in time again We're with Brian Sellers here on this long one on the Radio Show Limited Network. Um, so, teenage years, you karting. You're winning national championships. When's the transition made to cars, and how does that transition come about? So I was I was 16, and there I'm, I'm pretty certain this is how it all came about. There was a Grand National race in in Norway, Illinois, and um, so that was our biggest one of the year. Mm-hmm. This is still karting. Still karting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, it had been like it had been a bad weekend, a bad race, uh, and so for the final, I started 17th. And and I remember it like I used to always seventeenth yes. in the car race. That that's like starting hundred and thirtieth at the Nordschleife. It was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad. And I remember I would always look at my dad before every race and say, "Do you think we have a chance?" And I think it was all. It's always a way for me to calm my nerves mm-hmm. with him. And him, mm-hmm. you know, if he told me yes, then you know, and or he would tell me, "I think it's going to be a difficult one." And I looked at him at this one and I said, "Do you think we have a chance?" And he said, "Well, I think this one's going to be hard, but." You always have a chance. And so I won. Like, somehow I won. I don't know exactly how. From 17th. Yeah, from 17th. And um, it was really good. I mean, it was just one of those races where everything fell into line. I mean, you need help from there, yeah, right? Yeah, I think yeah. a couple carts in the middle, you know, crashed out. Took so, themselves out, So yeah. you get, you know, two or three positions that way. But still, we came through the field a lot. And um, so the point of that is... At the time, Skip Barber was doing karting scholarships, and um, they had sent scouts to races. And I'm quite certain that there was a scout at that race watching that race. Uh, and so a, a couple months later, I got a call saying, hey, we're doing um, a shootout. We've picked 16 kids across the country. We'd like you to be one of the 16. They took us all in. And at the time, it's much different than, than it has been in the past, but they paid for everything. I mean, we just had to get ourselves there, but they, you know, they paid for the schools, the right, the the evaluations, the the time. So, wow. 
So we get there. They put all 16 And this is where? You've traveled to where here? Sebring. Right. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. Wow. Yep. So we go to Sebring. And and do you, take... I, should have, I should have said, do you know where Sebring is at this point? Are You, you said that your um, appreciation of motorsport came because you were involved in it. So how much do you know about the sport at this point? And, and, and who are your heroes? Do you even have motorsport heroes? At this time, nothing in sports cars. Nothing. Uh, but IndyCar for sure, and of course Michael Andretti is is your guy, right? I mean, at that at that age, and he's a winner, so you mm-hmm. liked him. And um, but nothing nothing about Sebring sports cars were like not even on my. So you radar. had to look to see where Sebring, Florida, was. I had no idea. I had Excellent. no idea. Excellent. So so, th- but this is where my appreciation for racing actually started was at Sebring. So that's okay. a, that's a bit later. So okay. you know, depending on how much time we have, we can Keep talk going. about that, but. So we go down, and they take 16 of the best carters in the country. And it's me, Patrick Long, Joey Hand, um, you know, a laundry list of guys that are still— That our listeners would recognize. That's right, that Mm -hmm. are still doing it at at this point in time. So, I mean, long story short, they narrow down to four. And you're driving what? Uh, A Skip Barber Formula Dodge, which was a two-liter, basically, Formula Ford. Yeah. So— Slick tires? No. So treaded tires, no wing. Treaded tire, no wing, H pattern, um, synchro gearbox. So we had to double clutch and, you know, like technique was important. They were watching it. So they narrow down to four um, and they call two months later and um, Terry Earwood calls me and he had taught my three day and I had a good relationship with him and he calls and he says, "Um, I have good news and I have bad news. And I think... Oh man, uh, he says, "Which one do you do you want first? And I said, "Well, the bad news." And he said, um, "I hate to tell you, but uh, you're going to be away from home a lot." And he said, "Because the good news is you're one of the four that won the scholarship." And do you remember who the other three were? Patrick Long, Jason Lapointe, and a guy by the name of Ryan Howe, who was a right, so uh, Joey Hunt didn't even get in the no, top four. No, no, which wow. is which is crazy because. At that stage, um, I can remember for sure Joey, Patrick, and myself went through, I mean, five or six driver shootouts together. We did Team USA together where mm-hmm. Joey won and Patrick and I lost. And then the next year, <laughs> Patrick, uh, myself and AJ Allmendinger won. And so at that time, that was like the cycle. Driver shootouts, the, mm-hmm. like we just called them the gong shows among mm-hmm. the drivers. And so when we'd leave, we'd say, hey, we'll see you at the next gong show, right? Yeah. And so you lost you lost a few and you won a few. Um, and what was the prize for the one that you were in the top four? So what was, what was that? You're going to be away for a long time. You what, 17, 18? Uh, I was 16. 16 just, still. I right. had just turned 16. Right. Oh and um, so it was, they paid fully for you to do one of their regional series in Skip Barber. And wow. so this was before the national championship actually mm. had even started. So uh, next evolution to that is, is I, as I win the championship in the Midwest series, um, Patrick Long is doing the West Coast. I'm in the Midwest. So he wins that one. I win uh, the Midwest. The same year. The same year. Um, so it's good for them. They're carding scholarship mm. guys. They picked good guys. They were successful. So, But then they think, well, we don't have anywhere for these guys to go except for the pro series. So then they start a national championship series. Mm-hmm. And so then they, um, then they give people an opportunity to uh, move into that. So, they, so then I won a scholarship to go into the national championship. So they paid for 
so they paid for another full year of racing for me. So now in Skip Barber, I'm in two years of racing in, in each race, three or four test days prior mm-hmm. to each race. So they had a big part in this. So we go into the national championship. Patrick Long now goes to Europe and does mm-hmm. Formula Ford. Joey had done Team USA with Jeremy Shaw mm-hmm. and uh, one in Palmer Audi. Mm-hmm. So now he's gone into Toyota Atlantic with DSTP. Mm-hmm. And so all these people in the in the gong shows are starting to get placed <laughs> where they yeah. go. Um, so now it's the national championship. Um, so this is as close to being effectively a pro driver. Okay, you're not getting living money, but all you're racing, you're traveling paid for. So this is quite an extraordinary start for a young driver. Yeah, it was good. The travel we had to cover. Okay. The travel we had to cover. But all the racing costs... They, they covered. So, I mean, I think the the regional series with the test days was probably forty five to $50,000 for ten, uh, eight, eight race weekends, I okay. think. And then the national championship was also eight race weekends, dual weekends, but the cost was more. Um, and so I think that was like $60,000, $65,000. So just in two years, you know, their surplus of $100,000 investment into in you. In, into me, but not just me. There no. were four to eight other guys that were doing that at the same time because they just didn't stop with us. They also brought in new karting kids and the Mm. year behind me was maybe it was like, uh, this is, this is kind of what Mazda has taken on in the last, last few years, putting real money into, into the sport. And, And as I say, an extraordinary way for you to learn. And what you're learning at this time, of course, is car control. You're learning racecraft which is something that I think is often left out when people say, great driver, great driver, um, but can't race. And you see a lot of young drivers, I see a lot of them, I'm sure Jeremy does as well, who are insanely quick, but put them into a situation, him or her, into a situation, and their ability to assimilate what's going on and make a right decision in a fraction of a second, which is the difference between someone who drives racing cars and a racing driver, I always think. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm the former not the latter um that i don't think you can teach i don't think you can uh, i think you have some of that but i think you have to develop that skill over a while yeah i mean i think if i'm a team owner i don't actually i don't say this cautiously because you you care but i don't care how fast the guy is i want i want a winner i mm-hmm. want a race winner mm-hmm. and i think that um you know they're are just some guys that that have that and that's what you want when like, you say he knows how to win a race. He knows how to win a championship. It's an easy thing to say. It's a difficult thing to actually quantify. It's impossible to quantify. I mean, you have... you have. Except some... there are people who do it and do it consistently. I mean, you can say... Uh, you can take a small list of American drivers and and I would say you have your guys like Bill Oberlin, mm-hmm. uh, Joey Hand, um, uh, and Andy Lally is someone who, you know, I hate to say this because I race against him, but, you know, you have guys that that like those guys that you think these guys, they, they find, they find ways to win. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those are the types of people that you, you fight, you know, you fight to race against. Those are the guys you want. And in other forms of American sport, I'd say somebody like Jimmy Johnson, who, okay, fantastic partnership with Chad Knauss, but you know, they find ways to win. And, And that's when people say to me, what do you mean when you say they know how to win races? Surely everybody knows how to win races. That's not really what I mean. Winning races and winning championships, it's, you can, it's a nice habit to get into, isn't it? It is. But I think you look like Jimmy Johnson, you look a guy like that and you, for me, the thing that makes him a winner is his, his 
one unwillingness to lose mm-hmm. um, and to never yes. say die. Yes. I mean, he, th- th- there's in, in his and also his ability to operate under pressure. Mm-hmm. Like you just think the bigger the moment, and I hate this phrase, but the bigger the moment, the bigger he becomes. But it is true. I mean, yeah. it just seems that there's. I, in almost any sport, I don't know that I've, you know, you have your Michael Jordans and, and the Tom Brady's and these mm-hmm. people, but there's I, there's not many that are better under those shotgun moments than yeah. him. Yeah. Nobody in yeah. all of sports. Yeah. And that that you don't teach. No. I mean, that's just either there or it's so. not. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so th- those people are special. Guys like that are special. Uh, you're listening to the voice of Brian Sellers. This is a Tyler's Long One from the Radio Show Limited uh, Network. I'm John Hindhoff. Um, we're still fairly early on in Brian's career. He's made the jump now into cars with the Skip Barber series. Um, second year was that national series. How did you get on in that? I finished second in the championship. Two. Um, a guy by the name of Anthony Simone. I love the way you guys can always remember this. <laughs> always remember all this. And you probably know the exact moment when you lost the championship to him as well. Yeah, it was two races from the end. Yeah, yeah. It, was two, it was two races from the end. They had a rule uh, at Skip Arbor that if you went, uh, if you had contact that you had to pit. Yeah. And I was racing against him. Mm. And uh, I got into I got into the rear of him on two races to go and so I had to drive through the pits and you know it would have been a tight championship chase it would have gone to the last one for sure but that's you know that one took me out of it so I do I do remember I'm not sure I would have won but I would have had a much better chance that's for sure. Was that a disappointment Brian because you know you'd known a lot of success to that point um you know nothing is ever easy and I won't suggest that at all you know me better than that but you'd had more successes than you'd had failures and that must have been a disappointment. And how did that, how did that sit with you? And did that family and that lessons in life that we were talking about earlier, did that in any way prepare you for that? Yeah, it taught me. A, it taught yes, it did. But there's a little bit more backstory to it. Even um, I had felt that year that uh, I should have won. We all feel this way, so bear with me as we as we talk through this. But I felt I. had I should have won that year, but, um, it's very difficult. The cars were like really long in the tooth. And, and so there were different size cars for different size drivers and, and I'm on the smaller side. So there were only two cars to choose from, whereas the other group had, you know, a a group of 12 to choose from. And so I had felt like the, like the cars I had to choose from were a little bit off. And I had some weekends where I really struggled. So when we came to the final one, I was like, pretty upset with the way the whole year had gone anyway. Now that doesn't mean I was justified in my thinking, but that's the way I had felt. Yeah. So I was angry to begin with. And I think probably it's now I'm 17. Uh, I didn't handle the political side of it very well. So instead of, um, what 17 year old does though. Right, right. But it was a valuable lesson for me. Huh. So, you know, instead of going to the people and trying to find a solution, I became a little bit isolated and, and instead of being the person that I had for the past two years that got me the jobs had kind of said, well, if this is the way it's going to be, then I'm going to go to the track. I'm going to do my job and then I'm, <laughs> and then I'm going to leave. Um, and that obviously didn't, didn't work. Right. I mean, you, you catch more bees with honey. Right. Yeah. And, and so, but it didn't mean much to me at that stage. Uh, so then I finished second in the championship and you look back and reflect on all these things and, and think, you know, I lost the championship 
in more ways than one. It wasn't just because I had contact with mm. two races to go. It's because I didn't address the situation mm. correctly earlier in the mm. season and try and be the the right type of politician to get things fixed. Mm. And so that was a that was a valuable lesson for me early on. Is um, you know to. And did th- you understand that at the time though? Are you or are we sitting looking at this at some years hence and you can say. Mm, there was a time when I was in my twenties that I realised that. But did you realise that at the time? Yeah, I, I realised it after pretty quickly after <laughs> pretty quickly after the season was over. And I and I think um, the good thing about my family is is they've always kind of told me this is my deal and to handle it the way that I felt necessary mm. to handle it um, and been supportive of that after it was all over. I remember sitting with my mom and dad and them saying, "Okay." Now, do you think that you've handled this correctly through the way? And do you think maybe it would have been a little bit better if you'd have gone about it this way? Now, they weren't happy either, obviously, right? But um, you, I realized quickly that that was not, that was not the right way to handle. And, and I think, you know, I was a, at that time, I probably just came off as a spoiled brat. And um, I'm, I wasn't, and I'm not. So uh, that, to me, was probably at that stage end up being a bigger deal than finishing second yeah. because I think, you know, I was always I was always raised that as long as you can put your pe- head on your pillow at night, then that's all that really matters. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I felt like I conveyed somebody that was not me or my family. So, But you're 17. What year is this? Oh, uh, 2000 maybe. Right. okay. And so then what happens for next year? Is that your opportunity for next year? It's gone down the drain as well. And, and then all of a sudden you face the, the harsh reality of having to go into a marketplace and find yourself a drive. And, and even before that, do you decide that this is still what you want to do? I, I think a lot of things happened. So, yes, I shot myself in the foot for an opportunity. I was still invited um, to go to then their next level, which was the Pro Series at the time, to mm-hmm. the shootout. Um, but... Uh, I declined to go, um, which again, you know, I'm not sure was the right decision after they had put so much mm-hmm. effort into me and, um, you know, had a long conversation with Skip Barber himself about it after much many years later, <laughs> because I don't think I was old enough to talk to him about it. But, um, yeah, I, I declined because I decided, uh, about halfway through that series of that that's not what I wanted to do anymore. I didn't want, um, other people's, I didn't want my fate in other people's hands. I wanted to control it myself. And I don't actually think that that was probably the wrong decision. No. How I handled it was certainly the wrong decision. Um, so now you think what, what, what is there to do? And so in some ways you might've made the wrong decisions, but for the right reasons, rather than many people who made the right decision for the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly right. I, you know, I lucked into it, but yeah. again, I feel like I learned as about myself along the way and what I didn't want to be, yes. you know, moving forward. So at the time, um, F2000 was, was huge, mm-hmm. Formula Ford 2000, mm. which, you know, is Formula Ford just with wings. Slicks and wings. Slicks and wings. Um, and uh, a young guy by the name of Dan Weldon had just won the championship two years prior. Um, and he was actually at the very first Skip Barber sh- uh, karting shootout. Not competing, but he, I don't know why he was there. Maybe he was testing, but he mm. was there watching. And so I met him there, followed him because, you know, everyone said, oh, this kid, you know. He's he won come- with uh, Panther, didn't he? Um, he was with Panther early on. 
in IndyCar. Yeah. Um, but he was with a team called Primus at the Primus. time, I knew it was which a was Thank you. John Betos, who yes. was the importer of Van Diemen. Yeah. Um, and he won the championship yeah. massively. The next year was Aaron Justice. Yeah. Um, and then the next year was, I can't remember, but then I came the following year after that. And so Dan had, at that stage, he was kind of the poster child at that stage, right? Because he was obviously, um, I would say maybe not a once in a lifetime talent, but a once in a lifetime, um, package right i mean and he, remember he'd only gone to the states because everybody in the uk said if he couldn't win the formula ford festival and he couldn't win the formula ford title there was no future for him and i'd seen dan's very early career uh, help with his pr uh, early on with a, a then girlfriend of mine and he and i had a long chat about coming to the states when he was about the age mm-hmm. that you're talking about now and it was a big it was a big move for him and he and it paid off for him but you know that was another guy that worked hard yeah, and I, it, that's it's funny, and I, and I picked my words very carefully when I said you know a once in a lifetime mm. package, not mm. once in a lifetime talent, because I think there's there's a big difference. There mm. is absolutely no question he was extremely extremely talented, but anybody that spent any time with Dan knows that it wasn't the talent that got him that got him there. I mean, he that was, was just, yeah. one of the most persistent. Um, and and unwavering people I've ever met in my life, and mm. so. You know, I watched him grow and move to uh, Atlantic and, mm-hmm. and you know, continue to work. And you think, well, if you want to get in front of these people, this is where you have to be. Look at this mm-hmm. kid. Like, mm-hmm. they all know who he is. Mm-hmm. He talks to all of them. What you don't know is the backside is Dan, you know, gave them no option but to talk to them, right? <laughs> so you learn that pretty you learn that pretty quickly also. But that was immediately, for me, the right place to go to try and find a way. Um, so there was a team by the name of Cape Motorsports uh, that still runs there mm-hmm. and, and um, I think was huge in my development as a driver, but they had just come off of two rough seasons. They were used to winning, and I went and sat down and had a meeting with them at, at I was 18 years old just shy of 18. My dad came. Um, it was myself, John Bados, the importer, mm-hmm. um, and Dominic and Nicholas Cape. And I had some money from Leo Hendry. Yeah. So now here comes oh, wow. the sports car Hello. side of things, right? right? Okay. Here comes the sports car wow, side of things. Wow, okay. This is starting to put yep. the jigsaw together. So um, Leo invested the money for me to do this. But I had, you know, I think at the time he gave me $150,000, which is a ton of money for someone who he really had no relationship with at and all. How did that come about? Um, I had met a PR guy, a guy that was doing some PR for me, and he was friends with Leo, and he went to Leo, and Leo loved helping young drivers. Yes, he did. And, um, Very quietly, never shouted about never, it. Never, never. And um, so the guy told him, hey, you need to look at this kid. I think he, you know, I think he's something pretty rare mm-hmm. um and leo did and invested the money so i went and sat and had this meeting and they said okay it's like two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. and i said well i i'm out thanks sorry so thanks yeah. i appreciate Shake it and, I, and they said time. well what what did you think and i and i they, they were nice but they said what did what did you think and i said well i said to be honest i came and this is me my dad didn't really say anything because he wanted me to to handle it and i and i remember sitting in the meeting saying to them well i want to win that's all I thought coming in. And I thought that if I wanted to win, this is the only place mm-hmm. to go. And, um, <laughs> and I remember, I remember very specifically looking all three of them in the eyes and saying, I just don't, I just don't have the, the money to do it. It's not there. It's not available. Um, 
but I've just come off a year where I finished second and I didn't like finishing second. And I remember saying to them, I want next year, I will lead every session and win every race. Like that's what will happen. And neither it'll be with you or it'll be someone else. But I think my best opportunity is with you. And I said, but if it's that much money, then and it wasn't arrogant. That's just no, no. how I felt, yeah. right? And I was And you mad. clearly said that with conviction and with honesty. Yeah, I was mad. I was mad from mm. the cha- from the championship before and I wanted I wanted to to make a name. I wanted to mm. do something and and I I think at that time I had actually um uh, I had just lost my first Team USA um mm-hmm. scholarship shootout with Jeremy as well. Mm-hmm. Hadn't lost. I didn't get picked. Yeah. Um and so, like, it was like one hit after the other, and I, and I had had enough. You know, I'd had enough. And so um, we left, and uh, John Bados called me um, a day or two days later um, and said, listen, uh, here's what we can do. You buy the car, and I'll sell it to you at my cost, which is, I, I don't remember the numbers, yeah, yeah, X it, amount of money, yeah. $40,000. The end of the year, you sell the car back to me for $30,000. So it's yeah. a $10,000 okay. investment, yeah. and then I'll sell it. Yeah. Uh, we'll waive you know, the markups on the parts and yeah. blah, 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 blah. We can get it to $150,000. Okay. We, want you, to, we okay. want you to come be a part of the deal. Okay. So we did the deal. Um, and... Years later, you find out that it was because I told them I'm going to lead every yeah. session and win every race. So, and did you? Uh, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> good for you. We fell short a couple times. It was a good year. There were a couple really good guys, um, but we came close. I mean, I think I won uh, 10, 10 out of 12 or something like that. And who was your major competitor to that year? Um, there were a couple guys, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Jones, who had just come out of British F3, mm-hmm. um, Tony Katzimitz, who's still around mm. a little bit. Uh, Lawson Aschenbach, um, Charlie Kimball was there at the time. So, uh, you know, there was... Again, names that people will recognize. Yep, yep, mm. that's right. So there were there were some good... There were some really good... Uh, Jonathan Bomarito. Yeah. Um, so there were there some really good guys um, in good programs. Uh, so, yeah, we, we won the championship that year. So at this point, where's your aspiration? Where do you think you're going? You've won that championship. You've put your career effectively back on track after a year when you weren't happy. You've gone out into the commercial world. You've found someone to invest in you, a significant amount. And you've gone out, you're back on track. So now, what are you thinking? Where's your head at? For me, my my goal if I'm being honest, was never really Formula One. Like, everyone wanted to say their goal was Formula One. Mm. I would have been quite happy to get there, but it was never, like, that's where I had to be to be happy. Understood. But I really wanted to do Champ Car. I really wanted to do Champ Car. Such a great series at that time as well. It was unbelievable. And, I mean, I really, like, I I really wanted the Penske deal. Like, that was my thing. But not because... To be honest, not because it was Pinsky per se, but because of the attitude that they portrayed. Because still at that time, I was not like a history guy. I didn't have all these years of backlogging of my dad telling me, you know, who Roger Pinsky was mm-hmm. and how important they've been to motorsports. Now you know. Um, but I didn't. So and, do you look back now and think, oh my God, I must have sounded so naive, even in myself when I was thinking that dreaming about that um no because i think the reasons i i wanted to be there are are still the same and and it was actually ganassi and penske i I, i'm telling you i went to bed at night 
praying to be in one of those two seats. <laughs> and um, for me, the Penske deal, it's, it's, who, it's, it's kind of what I tried to model myself after because DeFerrin was there at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, you always hear these stories about how good DeFerrin was, not just because he was fast, but because of all the other things he had that separated him from everybody else. And that's what became... Racist mind, Gilles Deferne. That's right. That's 100% right. And so for me, that's what became important because at the time, I didn't necessarily view myself as like the outright fastest guy, but I thought that I could outthink and outsmart and outwork almost everybody. And so he was a perfect guy for me and and, um, a perfect guy to watch. And Mm. I didn't know him, didn't really meet him until much, much later. Um, but that's what I wanted. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be a technician. And so mm. that's what I tried to be. And that's why Pinsky and Ganassi were the two big areas. So we'll close this part of the interview then with the next step. Um, you've got the Formula Ford 2000 championship under your belt. Does that make it easier for the next year? And where was the next obvious step, presumably up onto um, something like Atlantic or something like that? Yeah, Toyota Atlantic was the next step, and I thought it would be easy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, oh, if you could only see Brian's face yeah. right now, this pain, this pain in his face. I thought it would be easy to get there, um, but I only did uh, four races that next year after winning the championship. Um, there was another, <laughs> there was another gong show, mm-hmm. and it was actually this time it was narrowed to two people: myself and AJ Allmendinger. Oh. Um, and he had just won the Barber Dodge Pro Series, yeah. which I, you could have been doing, which I could have been doing. <laughs> um, and I, sorry to remind you yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. And I had just won the F two thousand Championship. Him and I had just finished Team USA together in New Zealand for yeah. six weeks, and you know, at this stage, which was doing was that TRS doing that down there? The uh, sort of. Formula Ford esque series. Um, no, uh, John John Crawford, mm. um, and it was a Formula Ford series, and mm. so he was running it back. Oh then. yeah, yes, of course, yeah. Um, and so that was really good for me. Like I thought, AJ was not thought. AJ is very special. He mm. is once in a lifetime talent. Yeah. Um, and so I had gone down to that race and actually and that, for those six weeks and. Uh, fair, Heck of really, a lot of racing yeah, crammed into six weeks. Unbelievable. And so thank you, Jeremy. I know I tell him all the time, but, you know, that was probably some of the best six weeks of my life. Yeah, how I mean, old at this time? 17 and a half, 18? I think 18 now, yep. And so so you're traveling abroad yeah, for the first time yeah, as well? Yeah, just just AJ and myself, the two of us in New Zealand. For, uh, so I'm sure we could like, do an hour on just e- those easily, six weeks. Easily, easily an hour. Has the statute of limitations subsided on most of the things that you got up to? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, the, the rental car we returned, if uh, we were so worried, Jeremy's uh, credit card <laughs> receipt was going to be for about $32,000 for the <laughs> price of the car replacement by the time we were done with it. Um, but anyway, I mean, I had fared really well mm. down there against him, and um, I almost won the championship and um, had beat him for the majority of the races. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is this is a guy that I think, um, well, that I know is is, you know, extremely good. So for me, it was a little bit of justification of what I was capable of as mm. well. So we go into this shootout, and um, it went like really well. I, I you know, I was uh, just at, at in an Atlantic car. In an Atlantic car with where uh, at? Uh, it was P- 
Pueblo, Colorado for okay. Roos Sport Racing mm. at the time. And they had just started their deal, mm. and Carl Russo was sinking yeah. all kinds of money in. Um, and uh, I had gone a little bit faster than AJ, and I'd gotten along with the engineer really, really well. And the engineer tells me before I leave, he said, listen, um, I couldn't have been happier with how the, the test went. And, you know, he tells me, like, you're uh, one of the best guys I ever I've ever worked with, so I think, oh well, this is okay. this is shaping up all right. Uh, and and you felt more importantly, you felt you'd given it a good shot. Yeah, it, it was the it was the first time that I felt like I'd really done the job. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I was given an opportunity in a car I'd never driven to go out, and I felt AJ's strength was getting in something um, and going quick right away. Yeah, uh, mine was not that. Mine was much more, you know, build and technical and make the car better and mm -hmm. get there. But I knew what I was up against with him because I had just spent six weeks with him, so I knew the window of opportunity was very narrow. Mm -hmm. And I and I did a good job. The guy was happy, so. I go home two days later, I get a phone call and, um, it's the team owner, Carl Russo. And he says, um, you know, uh, oddly enough, I have good news and I have bad news. <laughs> Which one do you want first? And, um, uh, said the good news, I guess this is where I went wrong. Cause the time before <laughs> I said the bad news. So, so I told him the good news and he says, um, he says, uh, Gerald Tyler was the engineer thinks, you're as good as anybody he's ever worked with, and he'd really like to work with you. And I'm like, okay, so what's <laughs> what can the what bad can news the, yeah. be? He's, and and um, this was probably one of the most uh, repulsive, and I'll say it frankly, repulsive moments of my career because he says, but the bad news is, is you didn't get the job. So I thought that was just in really poor taste, you know, mm -hmm. to to do that that way to an 18 year old kid, mm -hmm. and I was. I was gutted, but it was difficult for me because I love AJ, and at the mm. time he was my best friend. You, you know, just spent six weeks with him. Of course, you yeah. had, and we had a great time together. So I'm happy for him, but gutted, gutted for myself. Um, and it that took a while to kind of come to grips with. But in the end, you look back, and and um, he was the right choice for that deal at that time. I mean, there's no... Well, he went to race with them in, in IndyCar, didn't he? With he Justin, did, Justin yeah. Wilson. Yep, and he won the championship in Atlantic mm -hmm. that year. And he was he was the right choice for reasons at the time unbeknownst to me. But mm. uh, he was he was he fit that mold. He was what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure I would have excelled in that environment anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, so I sat out all but four races with Lynx Racing that mm -hmm. year. Uh, that was difficult. So I thought, hey, if I win the F2000 championship, I'll go to Atlantic. And then if I go to Atlantic, I'll win the Atlantic championship, mm -hmm. and then I'll be in Champ Car. And how, how, how much better could this be, right? And then all of a sudden, I have nothing, and uh, I'm, like, going back to school. We'll take a pause from this long one. Brian Sellers talking to us here on the Radio Show Limited. At Network, I'm John Hindhoff, talking about his early career and the trials and disappointments as well as the victories. And we'll have more with Brian on another edition of Tyler's Longmore. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.